Well, it is a joy to see you here today and to have you be a part of worship at uh, Freedom Church, whether this is your regular place of worship or if today is your first time with us. I'm glad to have you here today, and it's always a joy to welcome in those of you who are joining us uh, on the web, whether it's live on Sunday morning or catching us later in the week in the archived version. We're glad that you're a part of things today. Uh, We have been in a series for several weeks now entitled uh, Be All That You Can Be, and as we've been working through this progression of of a lifestyle that really does embrace God's plan and open us up to everything that he designed for us. We've gotten to a point where last week and this week we've been talking about the call to be holy. Last week, don't know what that was. Last week, uh, we talked about the, the two halves of that. There were this, this call to holy living. I'm guessing that's me. Let's go with plan B. That the call to holy living is a call uh, from certain things and it's a call to other things. And last week we talked about the, the things that we're called to. And, and at the heart of this matter, the call to a holy life is, is ultimately it's a call to be more like Jesus. It's a call to be set apart completely for God and for his purposes. That's what we're called to. But on the other side of that is, is a call uh, from certain things, to step out and be apart from certain things. Now, I grew up in, in a typical Bible Belt evangelical church, and, and uh, it's probably like a lot of the churches that many of you attended growing up, and I'm grateful for so many of the things that I learned there. There's a lot that was positive there. But I will say, if there was uh, one significant error in a lot of the churches that many of us grew up in in the Deep South was in decades past, there was such a slant towards legalism. You all know what I'm talking about. That it was all about the do's and the don'ts and the, and the sin list. And you know, a lot of times it was kind of goofy stuff. We sort of made up our own list of all the things that made you a holy person. That, you know, it was kind of like Jesus can like you and he really can be your friend if you don't do all of these things. And then we made up kind of our list, whatever, you know, don't go to rated R movies, don't cuss, don't, you know, whatever. You're, don't, don't drink, don't dance, don't swear, just... All this stuff that made you a holy person because you did, you know, the list for for your church. And thankfully, there's been a real shift in the American church more towards grace. And boy, did we need that. And the good news is that Jesus came to extend a message of grace and hope, a message of mercy. That the truth of the matter is we all have fallen in countless ways into all kinds of muck. And we desperately need the grace of God. And so it's good that the church has shifted significantly in our lifetimes towards a message of grace. But here's the real concern even in that. Usually as the pendulum swings, if you give it enough time, it will overswing. You know how things as they shift will overcompensate. And in many churches that's been the case. That we've so held on to a message of grace that many times we will err in the direction of never actually talking about real behavior and about sin and about the things that we have to be willing to confront, look in the mirror and go, that's not acceptable to God. And there's only one right way to deal with that. And that is, I've got to repent. I've got to to put that under the blood, but not just say, oh, would you forgive it again? Because, God, you know, I'm going to run back out this week and do the same thing again. So be be ready tomorrow because I'm going to come back and be confessing the same thing. That that's not enough. 
that there has to come a point in time when we look at ourselves and say, according to the word of God, this is an acceptable. I'm called the, the word says God says, be holy for I am holy. And if I'm going to be a holy follower of Jesus, I've got to be willing to deal with this stuff in my life, which means there have to be times when we ask the question. So what is there in the New Testament that I'm really supposed to be concerned about in terms of my behavior? What am I supposed to move away from? We've had all of these kind of goofy lists of things that we're supposed to do and not do. But at the heart of the matter, here's the question that I want us to have to wrestle with and answer this week. When you search the New Testament, we, we're, and this is going to be shared under the covering of grace, but even knowing that as we search the Scriptures... What are the behaviors and ethical issues that we still should be concerned about? Not the things that the church I grew up in or the church that you grew up in said were important because mama and daddy and and all the deacons said that this was important. But what does the New Testament say matters in terms of your behavior and mine? Because when you actually search the New Testament, here's the thing that you bump into frequently that I've always found a little bit disturbing. And it's like, you know, where are we supposed to file this away? But there are all these lists. I mean, there are a bunch of them throughout, not the Old Testament, but the New Testament that say, essentially, that they all kind of work the same way. They'll, they'll say, you know, these, in some shape or form, it'll say, these are the things that come natural to you. And it'll give a list of just A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all these different behaviors. And they will almost always conclude with this thought in one form or another. The people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Bam! It's like, could there be anything more heavy than that to just sum it all up? Here's the list. If you practice this, you don't get in. That's pretty heavy speak, isn't it? And there are a bunch of those lists. Some of them are pretty long lists. And I don't know about you, but I've read these so many times. And there are always enough things in those lists that it's sort of tempting to let it almost become like spiritual white noise. It's like, yeah, all those bad things, don't do them. Or you go to hell. And we sort of just let that blend together. And it's easy to just sort of let that become, uh, well, bad people go to hell, so don't be a bad person. But the truth of the matter is, every one of those issues are significant, and it's easy to sort of just lump that in. Well, just just all sin is bad, and all sin sends you to hell, so just run away from all sin. Well, that's true, but at some point, we've got to be willing to ask the question, what are the things that the New Testament writers say are really primary concerns? And so that's what I've spent time lately doing, is just searching the New Testament, saying, what are the primary concerns... In the New Testament about our behavior. And as I've searched the scriptures, I've come across seven things that appear to be the dominant themes of the New Testament in terms of how are we supposed to behave as the holy people of God. Now, I'm going to just very quickly read for you. If you want to open your Bibles with me uh, to read some of these passages, I'm not going to read all of the, the different lists. But I'm going to begin in Ephesians 5. If you want to turn there, that's a good place to jump off. Because three of the things I'm going to read are within a couple of pages of each other. But in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, Paul says this. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Where there's an important line. But why do these things matter? Because they're improper. They can't fit in the lives of God's what kind of people? Let's try that again. What kind of people? What's this all about? 
becoming the holy people of God. So they don't fit for holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of, uh, are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. You see what I'm talking about? Naming off several issues, and then he's going, that's what the wrath of God gets poured out on. Don't be deceived. These people don't inherit the kingdom. Turn right with me about three pages. Colossians chapter 3. You with me? Colossians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore. Wow. Could he use any heavier language? He doesn't say, give yourself a pep talk. Try a little harder. Use a little more willpower. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, I'm going to jump back. You can keep your finger right there. I'm going to jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. That's a lot of heavy stuff, isn't it? Now, here's a little good news in the middle of all that. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That word just means becoming more like Jesus. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, if you kept your finger in Colossians, turn back about six or seven pages to Galatians chapter 5. One more reading. A familiar text. Galatians 5. I'm going to begin in verse 16. Paul remembers writing to Christians, and he says this about what we experience as Christians. He says, I say to you, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. You get his point. Both of these are at work in you and in me. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you, what you want. You ever done that? You ever been there? Lots of times, right? Where you do something and it is exactly what you knew you weren't supposed to do and you feel terrible about it. That's what he's talking about. He says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think I've heard this before. Sounds like a familiar mantra from Paul, doesn't it? You better take these things seriously. The people who live like this don't inherit the kingdom. And then he gives us, in contrast to this, what the Spirit is doing in us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. Paul is showing us this conflict that every single one of us who are followers of Christ 
feel in our lives pretty much every day of our lives, don't we? That there is something in me that wants to please and honor God and make wise choices and do life-giving kinds of things. And there is something in me that wants the very opposite. There is something in me that wants to chase after some of the bad stuff on these lists. Now, one of the things that we all have in common is of all the, the list stuff that we just read off, there are things on there that don't tempt you and don't tempt me. And there are things on there that look so appealing. Oh, maybe not on Sunday morning when we're all spiffed up and we're just loving Jesus and singing praise songs and raising our hands. But on a Friday night, on a Saturday night, or when you're really tired, when you're really lonely, when you're really at the end of your rope emotionally, there are some things on those lists that become second nature to you and to me, right? Are you with me? Say, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, me too. Now, in all of that, it can just sound like this big jumble of, ooh, just bad, 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 bad stuff. But there really are seven themes that begin to stand out. And what I want to do today is just very quickly, I'm going to just move through those seven. And here's what I want to invite you to do on the front end. If you're willing, you don't have to do this. But if you're serious as a follower of Jesus about living a holy life, would you just pause right now and pray a simple prayer with me? Inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to put his finger on any issues that are issues in your life. Would you just pause right now and do that? Father, we invite you to speak to us, not only by your written word, but by the very personal voice of your Holy Spirit in a way that would bring deep conviction and that would bear the fruit of repentance and changed behavior. We don't want to just be hearers of your word. We want to be doers of it. Holy Spirit, would you speak in this time? God, we realize the enemy hates when we turn to you and turn from sin. And so we pause right now and say to every spirit from the kingdom of darkness, in any way assigned or attached to the people in this room, be silent in Jesus' name and get out. Go to the feet of Jesus, but don't come back here. Don't come back to the lives of of the people who are here today. Holy Spirit, it's your voice that we welcome. Speak truth to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Seven issues. And I'm going to give them to you in two forms. Now, anytime we talk about moral issues, ethical issues, you can talk about it in the positive, you can talk about it in the negative. The scripture gives us both. I'm going to give you both today. I'm going to first name off the Christian virtues that the scriptures call us to. These are the things that are part of the character of God that we're called to imitate. But then I'm going to give it to you in more of kind of an instructional form. And those are going to sound like the negative version. And you may think, well, why don't you just be positive and leave off the negative? Here's a simple answer to that. Because the majority of what the scripture says about these comes across in the negative form. If you just want the truth of the matter. It just is what it is. That the word just says over and over, you got to stop this. you got to get rid of this. So I'm just going to give it to you both ways. The first issue of these seven is about chastity and purity And the command from scriptures are this, just to avoid all forms of sexual immorality. We're not going to take the time to read all the passages that address that. But I will say this, I haven't ranked all of these one through seven. But what I have done, it hasn't been to cherry pick. I just said, regardless of what I think, regardless of what I have been told is important, I'm just going to look at the scriptures and say, what are the issues in terms of ethical behavior and how we live our lives? What what are the things that... Just if you count up in the New Testament, what are the the biggest issues? And number one, as you search the scriptures in the New Testament, 
is about sexual immorality. It's about purity. We read a couple of, well, several passages. I'll just point you back to, to a couple. Ephesians 5, where we started, it says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Boy, that, that idea of not even a hint of, that is worth underlining and remembering. Or any kind of impurity, because these are improper, improper for God's holy people. Have you noticed how the whole conversation about sexual acting out has changed in the last 20 years? I mean, it, it's as if there's a generation that, for some pretty obvious reasons, has learned to sort of nitpick and define this as, well, sexual sin is only when people have sexual intercourse. And I'm not trying to just be overly graphic, but if we're going to talk about this issue, let's at least be real about it. You realize that the younger generation have gotten it through their heads that anything short of sexual intercourse is not sex. It's not sin. So they can engage in all kinds of other sexual behavior, and, and it's okay, it's cool, because the only thing that would be sin is to get completely naked and to do what's necessary to be done in order to bear a child. And that is not what the Scripture teaches at all. What the Scripture teaches is there must not be even a hint of any form of sexual immorality among the people of God. Well, what defines sexual immorality? The scriptural standard's real simple. God wants you to have all the sex you want, the best sex you can imagine, within the boundaries that he's laid out. And that is marriage. That's his plan. It's not to be restrictive. It's for you to get as much as you want as a married man or woman with your partner. And everything that is outside of those boundaries is sexual immorality. And Paul helps us a great deal when he says, don't let there be even a hint of this. When we're trying to figure out, well, is it sexual sin if you've still both got your clothes on and it's just your hands that are roaming? Ask yourself the question, is that a hint of sexual immorality? It ain't a hard test, is it? Doesn't take a very bright person or a very advanced Christian to begin to figure out where it gets to be a hint of sexual immorality. If you want to use the old analogy, it means you don't get to third base. It means you don't get to second base. It means you keep your hands to yourself. Unless it's your husband or your wife at your side. Not a hint of sexual immorality. You may ask yourself the question, why does the New Testament make such a big deal about this issue? There are some very good reasons for that. I don't have time to go into them in depth. But I will say this. The scriptures do point out that sexual sin is a unique sin. Paul talks about how it's a sin against your own body. And it does do unique damage to us. I mean, it's easy to say, well, all sins are the same. And, the, you know, there, there's no difference in the sight of God. There's a sense in which that is true. And there's also a sense in which it's very untrue. All sins are not the same in terms of their effect on us. And sexual sin has unique effects on us that are so destructive because every time that we enter into any form of sexual sin, it really does diminish our souls. It's as if a part of us has been given away that you don't get to, to reclaim. And the other thing that happens is every time we enter into sexual sin, it creates a soul tie with that other person that until we go back and deal with that in a biblical manner and sever that soul tie, it creates an invisible link between us and that person that enables spiritual transference to take place. Yes, demonic spirits have an open doorway to your soul back and forth between that other partner. And you may be going, what are you talking about and how do we deal with that? Come back next week and we will. That will be one of the issues we'll talk about in the final installment of, of this series next week. 
It's particularly destructive. Now, the good news is that can be forever severed once and for all. That link cut off so that there is no longer that spiritual transference that's taking, taken place. But Paul is trying to warn us. This is a big deal. You don't need to live in constant bondage. And this is an area to be warned about. Now, as we read the scriptures, we just find from one end to the other, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, the apostles are addressing this issue. Romans 1, and Paul hammers this in such great detail. 1 Thessalonians 4, he does there once again. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he, he helps us to take the, the perspective of, I want to attack, attack this where the battle begins, and he points out that it begins in our minds. He says, you know, you've been taught not to commit adultery, and you certainly should not. But he says, any man who looks lustfully at a woman, and he he lusts after her, and he imagines what he wants to do with her, he undresses her with his eyes. These are all the implications of what Jesus is saying. He says, you're already committing adultery in your own heart. And so let's tackle this thing where it begins. Let's yield not only our bodies to God, but Jesus is saying, you need to yield your very mind to God. Because if you'll stop this thing at the beginning point where you don't allow yourself to envision and think about impure thoughts, then you're not going to follow through with the impure actions. I'll share one other thing and then we'll move on. The passage we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul, just a little portion of that again, he says, Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men will inherit the kingdom of God. I noticed, because I'll... In my study, we'll do a lot of different translations. And I noticed that this particular passage had so many different ways of translating these these different terms here. And so many related to sexual immorality. And so just out of curiosity, when it when it's so different like that, I thought, I just want to look and see what it says in the Greek. So I pulled that out and looked at it. And uh, I was really surprised by some of what I found. The first couple of terms weren't surprising. The first one where it just says for those who are sexually immoral, it's, it's a really common term. It's... It's the pornea term that, that, you know, we get pornography from. It didn't mean pornography back then, and that didn't exist. But it's that generic term that can be applied to any situation that's sexual acting out outside of between a husband and a wife. So it's, it, that's just kind of, he starts with the, the one that sort of is general and covers everything. And then he begins to get more specific, and he says, you know, adultery, and we all know it, it's, it's a very clear term it's you know one or the other or both people are married but they're not married to each other so we we get that but the ones that made me just kind of go holy smokes were the last two terms the niv says men who have sex with men we all know there is no subject in american culture that is more electric than talking about homosexuality and so and, and, and if you've been around here for very long you understand in this church, everybody is welcome. It doesn't matter what you struggle with. We will love you. We will accept you. We're not going to sit here and pat you on the back and say, hey, whatever your sin is, good for you. No, not at all. We will love you and accept you and acknowledge that we are broken as you are broken, but we are not going to stay broken. We are going to be made whole by the Lord Jesus and his spirit working in us. And so we're going to be clear about what is sin. And acknowledge that everybody has sinned and everybody is broken, but we're not just going to linger in our sin and go, well, you just keep doing what you're doing and I'll keep doing what I'm doing and we won't talk about each other's sin. No. And the issue of homosexuality, I I really, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm starting to get a little ticked at how Christians have on 
on both sides screwed this thing up on the one hand, have been so ugly and hateful about it. But on the other hand, how liberals have just been sort of like, well, you know, we've progressed beyond this. It's such an archaic, you know, legalistic Old Testament concept. Let me tell you, if you read this passage in 1 Corinthians, as Paul said it, you can't walk away saying this is an Old Testament issue of the law. This is a New Testament concern. Paul lays out two more terms when he's saying neither this person nor this person nor this person nor this person belongs to the kingdom. Here's the last two things that he says. When I looked at this in the Greek, they were both terms I didn't know. I had to look them up. The first one meant literally the soft ones. I'm like, what in the world? When you read exactly the term that Paul used, what it meant, it meant the man in the relationship who plays the part of the woman. The one on the receiving end. And the second term that he used is the term for sodomites. In other words, it's the guy and the gal in a homosexual relationship. He's that specific. He says the soft ones and the sodomites. Now, I'm sorry if that sounds overly graphic. I'm saying that just to make a point. Paul ain't dancing around the issue, and neither should we. Everything, heterosexual or homosexual, that is outside of a relationship between a man and a woman committed to each other for life, the New Testament says is sin, it's a trap, and it'll hold us in bondage. That is the first issue. We all in agreement on that. We all clear on that one. Some of you are looking like, I'm not answering. (laughs) Are you with me on that? Say, "Uh uh-huh. All right, we're moving on. The second issue that comes up, and by my count, it is the second most frequent one, is that where the, the virtues are generosity and compassion... The issue is greed and selfishness. Paul says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And he goes on in Ephesians 5 to say, you can be sure that no immoral, impure or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. This issue comes up over and over and over. Now, I'll just tell you, of all of the moral issues in the New Testament, I think that this is the one that is the biggest trap for American Christians. I think this is the one that is the most socially acceptable. And the writers of the New Testament could not have been more in your face about this issue. They brought it up constantly. You know what Paul said about it in 1 Corinthians 5.11? He said, if you come across a brother, and by the way, so much of the stuff in the New Testament, speaks to the the male side of things, but it's just the language of the day. It's applied, obviously, to men and to women, just like the homosexual passage. It applies to men and to women. But in this, he says, if you come across a brother or sister, someone who claims to be one, and they are greedy, he says, don't you associate with them, and don't you so much as eat a meal with them. I'm pausing there for that one to just sink in. Doesn't that hit you as a bit weird? Does it? I, I, really, I'm, you, can, you can answer back. That, that sentiment does not line up with 21st century Christianity. Not in America, does it? You want me to tell you why it doesn't line up? Because we have been told again and again that the final virtue that we should hold on to is this. Judge not. Judge not lest you be judged. That means don't ever talk about sin. Don't ever talk about an issue in anybody else's life. We we misapply, we misinterpret the the call to judge not. 
And so it's like, well, I, I have to pretend like you don't have any sin in your life and you have to pretend like I don't have any in my life. And that concept, it's, it goes completely against the grain of New Testament teaching. Again and again, the apostles give us instructions to be discerning, not only about our lives, but about the lives of the people around us, not so that we can talk bad about them or shake a finger at them and tell them how bad that they are. But, I mean, you've got to do something with passages like this. When Paul is saying, if you see a brother or sister, and, and they, or they at least claim to be that, they declare that they are followers of Jesus and they're greedy. He said, you can't hang out with them. In fact, don't even go to lunch with them. I've got to tell you, I've read and studied this passage a bunch of times in my life. It still takes my breath away. That feels so weird. That feels so judgmental. Paul is trying to get us to understand greed and selfishness are like cancer. They exist deep inside you in places that you can't see, and it will grow and spread, and it is contagious to the people around you, a lifestyle of greed and selfishness. We have a huge disadvantage in the States on this one because we live in a greedy culture. And I'm not down on the U.S. I don't want to live anywhere else. But it is a huge challenge where we live, that we live in a culture where the whole idea is you work hard, make all that you can, and can all that you get, and use it on yourself. And that, by definition, is a lifestyle of greed. If you spend everything that you make on you and your immediate family, in an American culture, that pretty much, by definition, is greed. And there's only one way to get around that. There's only one way to overcome that. And that is to be generous and to give. Why is this such a frequently mentioned issue in the New Testament? I'm convinced that it's because God is training up sons and daughters to represent him in the world now and for eternity. That means that our characters have to reflect his character. And when you get to know God, the one thing, maybe as much as anything else that stands out about him is he is just a giver. He's a giver all the A grace giver. He gives what's not deserved. And you can't represent him well without being a giver. So the second big issue for us to consider is, am I a grace giver or am I a greedy and selfish person? Third issue, the virtues are patience and gentleness. The, the instruction is that anger has to be held in check. Colossians 3 Get rid of all your anger, hot tempers, hatred, cursing, obscene language, and all similar sins. Ephesians 4, Paul says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Get rid of all your bitterness, hot tempers, anger, loud quarreling, cursing, and hatred. It's interesting that Paul gives a couple of real specific instructions about anger. He doesn't say that all anger is sin, and it's not. Anger is a God-given emotion, and you ought to get angry. I ought to get angry at times. Jesus got angry a number of times in the Scriptures. That, that always is a little bit of a surprise, isn't it, when you open the Scriptures and, and sweet, gentle Jesus is ticked off. It's there quite a few times. He just got mad about the right stuff, and he dealt with it in the right way. That's why Paul said, in your anger, don't sin. He didn't say, don't get angry. Just don't let anger take control. And so one of the basic instructions that he gives is, hey, 
don't be hot-tempered, get rid of the foul language, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, when you're angry, address the issue and don't hold on to it because he says that will give the devil a foothold. And I will tell you, in terms of dealing with spiritual warfare issues and and demonic attachments in in the lives of believers or unbelievers, unresolved anger and unforgiveness is the single most frequent doorway that the enemy uses to get in the life of a believer. They always have to have a legal right to be able to get in your life and form an attachment. Unresolved anger and unforgiveness is the most frequent doorway that they use. That's why he says, you can't just stay angry. And let me say this as a practical word about anger. Some of the angriest people in the room don't even realize they have anger issues because they don't blow up. They don't get mad and scream and shout. They don't curse. They don't get ugly that way. They stuff, stuff it down, stuff it down, just put it somewhere away. And because I didn't let it out, and I made myself put on a smile and go to church and act like I don't want to kill my spouse today, I don't have an anger issue. Because, see, I'm really happy, just like all these other people in here. That doesn't mean that you don't have an anger issue. You don't have to be loud To be angry. In fact, some of the angriest people that I know, I've never seen them blow up. I've never seen them just let it out. And yet to get to know them well, you just are kind of like, one day that cork's going to come out and it's going to be bad. In fact, it already is bad because anger that's held in has all kinds of destructive effects. Paul says you, you've got to be willing to deal with that and get it out. It's amazing how many warnings there are in the scriptures about this. It, now here I'm going Old Testament, but Proverbs 22:24, word of wisdom. Solomon says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man or associate with one who is easily angered. I ran across this one in my quiet time a week or two ago, and it was just where the Spirit really drove it deep in, in me. Proverbs 16:32, which says, better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. It's just a good word, isn't it? Fourth issue. The, um, the virtues are goodness and kindness. The issue is that of taming the tongue. The call to avoid gossip, slander, and filthy language. Romans 1, he says, of, of these people who've rebelled against God and the knowledge of God didn't do them any good. And so God gave them over to depraved minds. And he says, they're gossips, slanderers, God-haters. They invent ways of doing evil. Colossians 3 says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, and malice. We just dealt with the anger stuff there. Slander and filthy language from your lips. I don't know which gets treated more gently in the church. Greed or or this one. the, The tongue issue. Because we do love to talk about each other, don't we? It just feels so good. Proverbs 18.8. There's so much truth in, in this. Solomon says, The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost being. It's like, oh, gossip is like chocolate chip cookies fresh out of the oven. It's just so good. Just... You know, it's it's like Krispy Kreme when the hot now sign is flashing. You know, you can eat six times as many when they're hot. Just, mmm, mmm, mmm. My mouth's watering thinking about that. 
said gossip is that way. It just, it just feeds something in you, something that's really sick and twisted. But it's so easy to write gossip off because of a couple of things. One, everybody does it, right? So it must be okay until you figure out God's measuring stick isn't anybody else. It's Jesus. And it's easy to write gossip off when, when you think gossip is only gossip when it's untrue. And that has nothing to do with the issue at hand. You realize it doesn't have to be a lie to be gossip. The definition of gossip has nothing to do with, with truth or, or something that's made up. In fact, the definition of gossip, if you look it up in the dictionary, is just casual talk about other people's affairs. Gossip is when you talk about somebody else's business in a way that is not designed to help them. Paul gives us a great standard in Ephesians 4.29 when he says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths except what is helpful for others according to their needs, to build them up. So anything short of that that's talking about other people's affairs is gossip, even if we do it in a prayer meeting. When we share all the dirt for 30 minutes and then say, now let's all pray about that for two minutes. And he does mention one other thing in terms of taming the tongue. And of course, this is a major theme in the New Testament. James 3, most of the chapter is spent on this. But in talking about taming the tongue, the instruction is not only to avoid gossip and slander, but also filthy language. I'm just going to hammer this one time and quit. I don't know where this came from, but there is something sick and twisted that seems to have just swept through the church in recent years where people who are otherwise deeply spiritual people suddenly have just gotten a pass to curse like sailors. You know what I'm talking about? It's like we're just so spiritual, we just know... That it's all about loving Jesus and loving people and we can just bleep, 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 bleep all we want to in our language and that doesn't matter. And the New Testament tells us again and again and again to get rid of all filthy talk, all obscene language, that this is not fitting. James says it's like fresh water and salt water. They don't come out of the same spigot. And he says all this blessing and cursing that comes out of the same mouth, it cannot be so. It all comes back to the same root question. Are we going to be the holy people of God who take seriously the instructions of the New Testament? Or are we going to give ourselves a pass on some things because it's easier to get a laugh if you throw in four-letter words? Which really is what it's about. Isn't it? When that stuff gets thrown in, it's for effect. It's not because we couldn't control it. It's thrown in for effect. Paul says, that's got to go. The fifth one... The, the virtues are honesty and integrity. The, the, the problem, the commandment is to, to refuse to lie, to deceive or steal. Uh, Colossians 3 says, don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Ephesians 4, what this adds up to then is this, no more lies, no more pretense, tell your neighbor the truth. Here's the, the real struggle with lying and deception. If you struggle with lying and deception, and I say both of those as kind of separate ideas because sometimes we'll play mental games with ourselves. It's like, well, I didn't tell a lie. I just didn't tell the whole truth. 
and I set you up to not get what the truth was short of having to tell you a lie. I just misled you. That's deception. And the, the problem here is if you are a deceiver, you ultimately become deceived about yourself. And I'm convinced this is true almost 100% of the time. Have you ever noticed that once you start lying, it's like a floodgate that's been opened up and it just feels almost impossible to stop? I mean, it's not just, oh, well, I told a lie about this issue and so I have to keep lying about that issue. Oh, it's, it's far worse than that. Once you, you ever open that, just kind of turn on that spigot of like, I, I was willing to tell lies in this area to make myself, and it's usually about making ourselves look or sound better or not having to fess up to something. And once we've ever done that, it's like there's just all these lies in us and they just, they're coming out. And, and suddenly we're, we're just willing to lie about anything and about everything and we lie when we don't even need to lie. And here's the really, really scary part of that. The person who is willing to lie and lie and lie rapidly gets to a place where they've used the deception so much that they themselves become deceived and they don't even realize that they're liars. I mean, here's the simple test of that. I mean, I'm not going to do this, but if I ask you today, are you a liar? Nobody in this room would raise your hand. I mean, if we all closed our eyes even so nobody else would see. I said, raise your hand if you're a liar. Nobody would raise their hands. Because nobody believes that they're a liar. And yet, if you had to honestly evaluate what you say in the course of, of any given week, there are a bunch of us in this room that would be shocked by how many things that we say that are just flat out lies or deception. Because those who tell lies and who deceive become deceived themselves. Let's be clear about this. It's not like it's okay some of the time. Jesus put it this way. He said, I am the truth. That's why truth matters. Jesus is the truth. And he said, Satan, this is Jesus' words. Satan is the father of all lies. So when we're willing to lie and deceive, we align ourselves with the enemy and we instantly open ourselves up to his influence in our lives. That's why the instruction is so strong to tell the truth. Get rid of all deception. Sixth issue. Moderation and self-control of the virtues. The instruction is to avoid, avoid overindulgence with drugs or alcohol. And let me say this about the issue because, you know, um, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's one of the basic virtues of the New Testament. And in a health-conscious culture, we immediately want to apply this to food. And I think we should. We, we certainly need to. You, you look around at us. We, everybody, including the preacher, need self-control in that area. The reason I didn't put that in your outline is I tried to really be true to what I said that I was doing in this message is to ask the question, what issues that the New Testament raises as primary issues and self-control as it comes to food is not one. Doesn't mean we don't need it, but it's just not one. Now, the Old Testament refers to that, but it's it's not a central issue in the New Testament. Self-control and moderation when it comes to drugs and alcohol are repeatedly given as, as issues that we need to deal with. I'll just give you a few of the examples. 1 Corinthians 6.10. Drunks, abusive people, and swindlers will not inherit God's kingdom. There's a reason he put drunks and abusive people in the same breath. Many of you listening today, you grew up with a drunk and abusive parent. 
They may not have been physically abusive, or they may have been. They may have been verbally or emotionally abusive. But so many times, the misuse of drugs or alcohol will lead to abuse. Uh, Revelation 21, boy, it's, it's pretty blunt. For the cowardly, the faithless, those who commit sexual immorality, those who use drugs, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. And, and actually, 1 Corinthians 5.11, that same passage I referenced earlier, where he said this of a greedy person, he also said of a drunkard, he says, don't, don't be willing to associate with or share a meal with someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but who is a drunkard. Now, th- there's a difference between somebody who struggles with alcohol and who is working to deal with that. Absolutely associate with that person. Encourage them. Be a friend to them. Be, be with them, even as they struggle with it, as they are working, as a good, for instance, in Celebrate Recovery, as they're working the steps, as they're doing what they can to address this. There's a difference between that and just saying, I like to drink. I love to just get tore up on the weekends. It makes me feel good. Paul said, that doesn't fit for a believer. Seventh issue the virtues are honor and respect. The, the issue at hand is rebellion. The instruction of the scriptures to submit to those in authority over you. It's, it's interesting because, like I said, I didn't go cherry picking. I didn't go looking for issues. I just looked to see what issues were there again and again and again. And this issue of rebellion is there so many places in the New Testament. It's almost humorous at first the way it comes out in some of these passages. In Romans 1, where he's naming the dirty bad, bad stuff that he says, these are the people who go to hell. And he says, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I mean, it, it almost sounds kind of funny in the context. In, in 2 Timothy 3, when Paul is talking about in, in the last days, how terrible some people are going to be. And he says that there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I mean, am I the only one in the room that just almost sounds almost just like a little comical or something like something that you wouldn't take that seriously? And yet the writers of the New Testament took these issues very seriously because the heart of the matter is rebellion against authority and everything in the kingdom of God happens along lines of authority. And so the New Testament is heavy with instruction about submit to the authorities that are over you. Uh, Romans chapter 13, submit to all governing authorities because there is no authority except that which has been instituted by God himself. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 13 gives us the instruction, obey your leaders, talking about within the church, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account to God. Obey them. Titus um, 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient. The heart of the matter is this. You can't submit to God's authority. I mean, and this is the only way to get anywhere in the kingdom of God. You can't be submissive to God's authority without also submitting yourself to the authorities that God has put around you and over you. Now, we've got a few teenagers in the room, but but beyond the younger people, we've got mostly a room full of adults. So the instruction to obey your parents doesn't apply. You're not living under your parents' authority. But the same principle carries over that God puts authorities in our lives. To husbands and wives, Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
God puts spiritual authorities in our lives. He puts governing authorities over us. He puts authorities over us in the workplace. And one of the most basic things that he's teaching us is to submit to authority and to get rid of rebellion. All right. We're done with the list. That is a lot of heavy stuff, isn't it? Even when you cluster these things together and you say, all right, seven issues. What do you do with that? Well, here's what we need to do with that. We need to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and say, of these, where do I really struggle? In fact, I want you to just do a little exercise with me. Would you close your eyes for a moment right now? And just say, Holy Spirit, would you in this moment put your finger where my struggle is the greatest? Now, I'm just going to, with your eyes closed and your heart open to the Spirit of God, I'm just going to name the seven issues again. And we're just saying, Holy Spirit, show me the one or two areas where I struggle the most. Sexual immorality, the issue of purity, moral purity. Greed and selfishness. Matter of generosity and compassion. The third one. Uncontrolled anger. Issues of patience and gentleness. Fourth. Gossip, slander, and filthy language. The fifth. Lying, deception, stealing. The sixth. Overindulgence with what you take into your body. The final one, rebellion against authority. Holy Spirit, would you just do that work of granting conviction that really leads us to repentance? Now I want to share three things with you. You can look this way. Three things, three verses with you as we wrap up. Because when you look at this list... You could despair, uh, because I, I think it's safe to say this. Uh, every one of us heard something today that, that was a bit of an oh me, because that is me. Uh, if there's anybody who's an exception, feel free to raise your hand and say, I've got all of those nailed. I mean, there is everybody struggles somewhere in that list. And, and it, at some level, that ought to be really disturbing to us, because... Of this thing. The people who practice this again and again don't belong to the kingdom. It's like, so, so what's the net effect of that? Does that mean none of us belong to the kingdom? No. The question is, what are you doing with the areas that you struggle with? What, what if you're struggling? Well, how do we deal with that? Well, it's not complicated. Three verses I'll share with you as we close. Three things to do with that. The first one is the obvious one. We confess it. Proverbs 28.13 says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them... They will receive mercy. It just means that we don't write it off, we don't excuse it, that we just get very direct in agreeing with God about what He says. God, you know, if your thing is gossip, to say, God, I'm going to stop excusing that, I'm going to stop overlooking that, I'm going to agree with you and just call it what it is. That is sin in my life, and I repent of it. I ask you to forgive that and to give me the strength to change that. The second passage. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 57. We could use a little good news this morning. How about some good news? He's, Paul says, but thank God He, Jesus, gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say, because I always hate to make the assumption that there's never a room full of people that everybody in the room belongs to Christ. 
There is no hope or help to offer apart from Jesus. Amen? Whatever your struggle with sin, self-effort ain't going to fix it. Only Jesus can remedy that. But Paul says the good news is God has remedied the problem in Jesus. If you turn to him, give thanks to God because Christ has already paid the price on the cross and he has supplied what you need. He supplied his shed blood which covers your sin. The stain of that is wiped out. But he also has given you the gift of the cross and of being placed in him so that the old person that still wants to run back to those sins can be put to death every day as you bear the cross and let Jesus live in you. So the second thing is to turn to Christ. And the third passage, the final one of the day, 1 Corinthians 1.30, where he says, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. He became wisdom from God for us. That means that he made us righteous and holy. That's what we're talking about. He made us holy and he delivered us to every day press into Jesus and to realize the only way God ever sees you as holy is because of Jesus' righteousness being credited to you and you every day yielding to Him and the work of His Spirit in you. Is there any effort necessary on our part to deal with the issues that we talked about? You better believe it. But apart from you depending on Jesus, you'll crash and burn on a regular basis. I know that from first-hand experience. Be quick to confess it. Give thanks that in Christ you have the victory and press into Him on a daily basis. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together right now in prayer? It may be that today you are at a place that you've heard the truth and you realize that there's stuff in your life that hasn't been dealt with and you feel like you need to to fix that before you really can do anything with God. And I just want to tell you that that's the reverse of, of truth. That the only way to get it right is to first turn to Christ to confess sin and to give thanks for the fact that he's borne your sin on the cross, that he's paid the price. If today you need to trust Christ and for the first time in your life experience his forgiveness, would you just pray a simple prayer with me that says, Jesus, I need you in my life. I realize I am a sinner and I can't fix me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me and paid the price for my sins. Would you forgive me? Would you make a new person out of me? And would you live your life in me? Thank you for saving me. God, I thank you for hearing and answering those prayers. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've been faithful to cause your word to be truth speaking personally into our lives. And I pray that you wouldn't let that just land at a heavy place that just leaves us oppressed. I pray that today for every one of us who felt the pangs of conviction, that in this moment, Lord, that we would be able to confess and feel just the joy and relief of knowing that we belong to you. That the reason that we care is because your spirit is at work in us. And that you are making of us a holy people pleasing to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you have become for us wisdom from God. That you are our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. We put our hope fully and only in you. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.